I travelled in order to discover things about home and the identity which it gave me. For example, the first time I swum in the Mediterranean Sea, I realised a great deal about certain techniques I'd been taught by Tasmanian waters. After several days of hiking across stony mountains and in great heat, I descended a steep slope of slate to a busy beach. I instantly tossed my backpack down, stripped to my shorts, and marched into the water. With a flurry of motions, as if in fast forward, I tumbled into the salt water, splashed around, made a few quick strokes out, and then kicked my way back in again. Returned to the shore and flopped on the sand. Such were my methods when it came to swimming. But it was something I'd been trained to do. A style that was honed in the ocean, where the water temperature almost never increases and the waves come pounding in hard like blows from a boxer. It wasn't necessary in the Mediterranean, which is as flat as a pancake and just as warm. So having thus embarrassed myself at that particular beach, I made my way back into the sea, waded out slowly and serenely, let my body go buoyant in the salt water, floated on my back for a while, closed my eyes against the baby blue sky, and promptly fell asleep. Even more meaningful than that was the reunion I made once with the Pacific Ocean. I had made long strides around the world, but mostly been inland. Sure, I'd seen ocean from an aeroplane window once or twice, but I'd only been able to sit by the Arabian Sea, on the reclaimed land of Bombay, which with its fringe of rubbish looked like a tailings dam, lined and limbed with artificial filth. And one afternoon I'd stood upon the Baltic Sea, but it was towards the end of the boreal winter, and the water was frozen as far as I could see. I suspect I could have walked to the Arctic Circle, and the ice-encrusted shore was not reminiscent of the beaches of home. But eventually, many months after all that, I was taken down to the shore of Malibu, California. Immediately I felt connected to something I'd missed. I remembered that I was an islander, never far from waves that roll in from the furthest distances in fresh, unsyncopated sets. The sound, the smells, the taste in the air, the feeling of gravity and expansiveness, everything reinvigorated me and told me that I belonged to this place, that the Pacific was a significant part of my life. Naturally, there at Malibu, I found a tennis ball and a plank of wood that I turned into a bat for beach cricket. I taught a Californian mate how to hit a hook shot and later had to run into the surf to retrieve the ball after she hoiked one of my long hops out there. Knee-deep in the water, I got dumped by a mighty wave. I just managed to keep my shorts. But my glasses were washed off carried away by an undercurrent to become yet another chunk of marine debris. I'd been blinded and reminded of the ocean's great energy, its force, 
its ferocity. It is a great instructor, a living, breathing entity that lets us know something of our fate, our fragility and frailty. The small lot of shifting sand we call ours in this world. But that night, at a beach up the coast called El Matador, I stretched out my sleeping bag on the sand under moonlight which painted the coast a shimmering silver. And there I encountered another aspect of the ocean. It shared with me an enormous portion of peace. Some months later I made the flight back home. The last leg of that journey is over Bass Strait, and as always I craned my neck to look out the window to see where that salt water met the land mass of Tasmania. The strait is a shallow chute through which the ocean is pushed along ragged cliffs and rocky shores. It's the site of most shipwrecks in Australian waters. You can sometimes sense that even from high above. And I imagined myself a mutton bird, making my way home from a long tour abroad, and sensed that Bass Strait was home country as well, despite the violence of the waves. One of the first things I like to do whenever I come home is to camp in the asbestos hills and go swimming at the beach adjacent to them. And though he was swimming off the coast of Algeria, I always feel like the author Albert Camus once did. As I swim, he said, my water-varnished arms flash out and turn gold in the sunlight and then plunge back with a twist of all my muscles. The water streams along my whole body as my legs take tumultuous possession of the waves and the horizon disappears. The train carriage in which I live is conveniently positioned not far from a beautiful river. The river's only a k away, as the crow flies, though it's a bit of a bush bash through dense woodlands to get there directly. And throughout the neighbourhood there are a number of easier ways to access its waters. For example in the dam, which was built a decade or two back, and which deformed the river's course and made a broad swimming pool instead. But the best spots are in the small, dark holes where the trout fishers cast their lines, or under the falls, or even up in the high country tarns where the river is born. The other night some neighbours and I had a picnic on one of the river's bends. We cooked on a cast-iron pan over a fire of cast-off limbs. Then some of us pushed forth off a rocky bank, making calm strokes out to the centre, taking deep breaths. 
I always try to remember that for a long time the original inhabitants of this area camped along these waterways as well. I love swimming in mountain streams. Look at a map of my island and you will see that they run off the mountain tiers in innumerable ribbons, tumbling countless contour lines in leaps and bounds, cold and swift and dark, rivulets and creeks, pouring through gullies and ravines, precipitous watercourses that eventually meet as the major rivers and race towards marine oblivion. In the highlands they make picturesque picnic spots and campsites, lined with pines or fringed with ferns, where fish catch butterflies and falling leaves place ripples on the surface. It is easy to make a metaphor here, to compare a river with the passage of time. It was the ancient philosopher Heraclitus who coined the cliché that you can't step into the same river twice. Time flurries away from us all inevitably, and all of life is a self-generating flow that cannot be paused or suppressed or controlled. I can accept Heraclitus's hypothesis easily most of the time. Circumstances are always changing, and will change with them. Each second produces various possibilities, and in the following moments that we face, everything can be rearranged. But to be honest, it's at certain stretches of mountain rivers that I lose all sense of the truth that it will all eventually slip away. Up there it's as though nothing's changed since the last ice age when the recession of glaciers gave the landscape its shape. Up there, it seems to me, that a river, a universe, a person might well flow in a self-contained and circular motion, a fountain of eternal recurrence, in which existence could perpetually be recycled. Ah, but lofty philosophies like these seem to get dashed on the rocks easy enough. One summer I was working as a guide in the highlands. We'd taken a lunch break near the headwaters of one of my favourite streams. So I swam out to the edge of a waterfall and back before making tea and feeding myself a sandwich. And as I sat with my toes in a cold cascade, I looked upon my legs and noticed the latest lacerations on top of scars from previous summers amongst the spiky scaparia bushes. Those cicatrices had faded with time, and so too with the most recent scrapes. And thus there I felt my body and its energy had a linear plan like a watercourse, and like any hydrological system, my life too would drain out. But others could be born along it. And in the meantime I might drop my thoughts like blackwood seeds into the current, to at least let them circulate and see if they could yet come back to me. And if they won't, then to learn to let them go.
One evening in winter as I walked around the train, I came upon an unexpected acquaintance. Making its way through a ditch in the dusk was a platypus. Travelling towards a small dam that turned out to be its temporary abode. I gave this creature a nickname, although I made no claims to have it as a pet or anything like that. But I called this platypus Squelcher. I think it was a male, although I'm not sure, only having watched it glide around on the dam in the half light. Effortlessly impressive. Surely one of the most fascinating animals in the world. Later it decided to make its habitat somewhere else out of sight, but even this brief visit was generous. A friend once told me that the thought had crossed her mind that she was a reincarnated platypus. She was certainly a strong swimmer, so I could see the resemblance there. But for her the story went a little bit further. She felt she was self-contained and difficult to explain, enigmatic to those around her even though she calmly thought she made plenty of sense. She would look at herself in the mirror and squint and think her silky skin could instead be slick fur. She felt like liquid in animal form, which is also what I thought watching the platypus in the pool near my train carriage this past winter. And my friend said her world could well be a chain of waterways, streams and dams and estuaries that created interconnected routes down which she paddled and tumbled, spending much time underwater, beneath the surface, in secret. She wasn't born in Australia, this maid of mine, and although she thought little of this, She had once or twice worried that she might inflame some patriotic nonsense by openly calling herself a platypus. But this identification was something she kept close to her chest. But it became so strong for her that she renounced certain human traits, the things that interested most people, and concentrated on those things she could achieve with platypus priorities, without attracting too much attention to herself. The city that her family once fled is in the middle of a desert, perhaps as far from either fresh or salt water as anywhere on earth. I thought that was why, when she came to Australia, she devoted herself to rivers and the sea, opposite to tract and all that. But when I actually mentioned this to her, she corrected me. In fact, she said, the smell of wild water reminded her of a fruit market in front of the mosque back in the country of her birth. Some rivers smelled like apricots or quinces. Certain beaches reminded her of sour cherries, and when she found herself in open ocean, she thought the scent was reminiscent of the unripe plums she used to gnaw upon in the springtime of her childhood. By the time I met her, she was a sailor, a kayaker, and a comic storyteller. Her latest recreational pursuit had been free diving. She said that when she emerged from her first dive, the instructor was yelling at her, 
incomprehensibly. Several times she'd had to get him to repeat the urgent sentence he kept calling out, until at last she understood. I said, you wouldn't be dead for quids. She glowed bronze, shone like the skin of a dolphin. She liked to watch her body change colour where it met the water, as if she was being steeped in tea. Sometimes the water's movement was like a series of caresses, especially as she stepped in off the bank or the beach, her feet on the mud or seabed, savouring the slow descent into submersion. She had watched the effect of water on her pubic hair, the way it changed texture and looked like it had been made by strokes from an abstract painter's brush. The way the water's meniscus made a silver band around her pelvis or her belly or her biceps or her breasts. Like she was wearing a Viking woman's talk on each of these places. And when she was completely immersed, She liked the pressure on her eyeballs and her temples and the fact she could see dark red or dark blue. The same as she remembered from when she slept in the desert, fleeing towards freedom once upon a time. But the anatomy of a swimmer is complex and completely individual. It's different for each of us. Our bodies meet the water in their own ways. So too our eyes, our brains. My own marine meeting with the platypus person I've mentioned took place at the public baths on the Mornington Peninsula. She taught me some of the vernacular of her first language, words for fish and waterfalls and frogs as well as different types of fruit. Her swimsuit was ill-fitting and her hair swirled around her groin. She took her headscarf off and floated it on the pool, then dived under and surfaced inside the fabric. It made a green sphere around her head, like one of those old-fashioned dive helmets, and inflated upon her shoulders. The water there, I fancied, smelt like figs.
A while back I noticed a recurring theme in my dreams. At night I kept finding myself in toxic waters, wading into infected ponds, diving into polluted dams. It was earlier this year, the dawn of the pandemic. And these waterways seemed to symbolise the situation we'd found ourselves in. The water was like the air, infiltrated by invisible droplets containing viral particles that might poison our bodies. Psychoanalysts may tell us that such pictures of pools and creeks and rivers represent the depths of consciousness. Whatever the case, bodies of water make good situations for dreaming. They are mysterious, significant places, almost always radiant with meaning. I'm equally happy to picture the act of swimming as poetic and metaphorical as well as physical. It's an ancient action, an athletic activity imbued with fun and magic, which has been practised off the coasts of Tasmania for many millennia. Aboriginal women here were the most skilful swimmers that the early European visitors had ever seen, as they dived for seafood in the bays that corrugate the island's outlines. They swam also to escape potential kidnappers. Sometimes they swam to save the lives of drowning kinsfolk, or even colonists. In no way do I consider myself a strong swimmer. I'm not hopeless, but I have a healthy fear of wild water. When I was a teenager I was almost dashed like so many ships against the sharp granite of King Island. Caught in a current, I struggled to swim against it, lost a flipper in the process, and was carried to a baroque-looking rock in which I clung and from which I was eventually able to extricate myself. Bass Strait taught me an important lesson. I was not the first nor the last. So some waters inspire fear, but they also prompt excitement and a thirst for adventure and all the stories that come with it. As with the waters around Tasmania, each inch of the surface of the Aegean Sea and even some of the realm beneath is marked with the memory of various deeds, the tales of heroes and gods. Perhaps in honour of some of those personas, And of course, with a prayer to Poseidon and thoughts of Thetis, I too have eagerly leaped into that wine-dark water. In truth, the Aegean's usually calm compared to, say, the Southern Ocean. But of course the gods can stir up trouble in whatever setting they like. And so it was with an artist mate, once by a small rock off the island of Paros, Someone had pointed out to us that twice daily the rock was submerged, but at low tide it retained a residue of fresh white salt, with which we romantically hoped to season our dinner. My cobber swum with a light waterproof bag strapped to his shoulders, a bright yellow plastic backpack in which he only carried a single Tupperware container for the salt. We swum easily to the rock, scraped up the salt in a leisurely manner, and started to return to the beach. But now the tide's ebb was strong, and a rough surf crashed into the shore. It was one of the rare occasions in which I was the stronger swimmer, 
much stronger in fact, for at one point I turned around to see my artist friend struggling in the swirling waves, as if caught in a whirlpool. His small head receding against the horizon, the backpack like a flotation device that wasn't quite doing the trick. The Greeks have written wonderfully on marine themes for millennia. I recently reread a piece by the late poet Vinos Christianopoulos, who must have experienced what my mate and I did off Paros many times over. The sea is like love, he wrote. You go in and cannot know if you will come out. For how many did it not consume their youth? Fatal dives, deadly dives, cramps, holes, unnoticed rocks, whirlpools, sharks, jellyfish. But damned if we will cut down on the swims just because some five or six drown. Damned if we will betray the sea because there are ways that it will engulf us. The sea is like love. A thousand ways to rejoice and one to pay it. I once overheard a woman advise that if a girl didn't like swimming, she would be no good at making love. I don't know about that. Don't remember if I scoffed or laughed more, but I have remembered her words over the years. And indeed, a good many of the most romantic moments of my life have happened in between dips in a river or a lake or the sea. Breathless occasions like those strange silences that come in the interlude between two heavy waves. But that's also because swimming mostly happens in summer, when the world opens up, when you're outdoors more often and wear fewer clothes, and when you can at last put a good many of your dreams in motion, when stone fruit ripens, and you can sometimes sit and wait for serendipity, for hours on end, without any need to hurry without closing yourself off. You're relaxed, you're warm, you're well-fed, you're perhaps more confident and playful and with a bit more distance between yourself and your regrets. And so I remember the night where I inadvertently traipsed upon countless sea urchins showing off at a small beach on the edge of a coastal town far away. I had black spines and the soles of my feet for days. I swam with tropical butterflies and a beautiful Celtal woman in a lagoon the colour of crushed sapphires near the Lacandona jungle. On another occasion, after a decent innings at the Royal Oak Hotel, my brother and I broke into the local swimming pool, flirting with two sisters with whom we were good friends. When the security guy arrived, we scrambled to find our clothes and leapt back over the fence half-dressed. 
And of course, there were once the inevitable evenings in Launceston's Cataract Gorge, where the line between friendship and something further sometimes blurred. Nude swims after a night out. Bare bodies on the boulders, with towels as blankets, as the cold set in. There was also a particular afternoon on the Tasmanian west coast, where the currents of the Indian and Southern Oceans combine. My mate, a photographer, pulled out his medium-format camera as I stripped down to my undies and ran into the surf, my long hair flailing all over the place in the wind, I suppose obscuring my face. Because two blokes in a boat navigated near to me as I was about to duck-dive under a wave. They catcalled and yelled out to my friend, Yeah, take a photo of her. Woo! Swimming and falling in love. These are things which are commonplace and yet which do not cease to be miraculous, which nevertheless retain mystical qualities, even as they show themselves to be a pattern that proliferates throughout the whole span of your life. For the first time in a good while, I have arrived at the onset of the swimming season having sat through a whole winter. Ordinarily, I'd have only had a short while away from the water, and in some years I've managed to swim throughout every month of the calendar. But not this year. I remember the last dip in the dam, in autumn, just about when the pandemic first reached us. (laughs) It's as if it happened in some past life, really and winter offered few incentives to wade out into the waves. The falls near my place froze over. But last week I gathered with some mates on the edge of a familiar swimming hole and with a deep breath we leaped off a well-worn rock and into the river. I went out to a certain latitude, as if to the middle of an eddy, and looked at the forest around me, up to the sky, and then wondered at what was beneath my dangling feet, in the eel's country below, in the depths of that beautiful stream. And since then I have started splashing about almost every day, in every conceivable body of water, trying out all types of swimming, breaststroking and doggy paddling and floating on my back and doing the old Australian crawl. Sitting under waterfalls, and letting my body slide down cascades, leaping from higher places, reaching down beneath me, trying to touch the bottom. Who will count how many kilometres I will travel like a fish this season, in these coming months? Who cares to measure it at all? For the most part, it is a purposeless activity. I'll be achieving very little, just like a river and like most of the wonderful things in our lives. As far as I'm concerned, there is no greater marker for seasonal change. Suddenly it is summer. You are swimming. You are meeting new people. You are seeing old friends and revisiting favourite places. Your skin gets darker, and your hair is styled by sunlight and salt. Maybe you sleep mostly in a tent, 
or at least go on adventures to unexpected corners, places you wouldn't dare visit in winter. The constellations are high above. The grass dries out. The flowers come and go. Soon enough, it will be over. You will look for another miracle, find other mystical acts to keep you going. Supposedly there will still be the possibility of falling in love. But what seems more likely is that you will miss whatever these summer days bring. And before too long, you will reminisce about the big jump you made off that bridge. The cold temperatures of the Southern Ocean. The colour of that river or that lake. You may even miss the bloody sea urchins on the bloody beach. On the other hand, perhaps you are listening from a different hemisphere. The world has tilted you away from the sun. The temperature has dropped. The distant stars rise from behind the horizon. There is no reason not to attempt to enjoy the rather different rhythm of winter. Remembering that the planet will lean towards sunshine some other day that the time of swimming will come again. The tide ebbs and flows. The river rushes on, and they say it renews itself every instant. They say you won't have the chance to return to the same river ever again. But you will. You will. <laughs>